Hello. I'll have to ask today's guest whether he knows the answer, but I suspect that if a public survey asked respondents to name 10 iconic British brands, Brompton Bicycles would appear on the list. If it were restricted to manufacturing brands, it would surely make the top five. Not bad for a company that started with the desire of a single bike-riding engineer to develop a product qualitatively better than anything on the market. That engineer was Andrew Ritchie, and he made the first bike in 1976. In five decades, that first prototype has grown to a global business, which manages to combine profitability and expansion with a deep commitment to the product from its users and, as I've said, a high and positive profile with just about everybody else. So what's the story of Brompton's rise and rise, and what can we learn from it? Let's find out from the man who's been at Brompton for 20 years and has been its CEO for the last 14. Welcome to the podcast that tries to make sense of our new reality. This is Bridges to the Future with Matthew Taylor, brought to you by the RSA. I'm delighted to be joined by Will Butler-Adams, joint author with Dan Davis of a wide-ranging and engrossing book, The Brompton, Engineering for Change. Will, how are you? I'm very well. Well, it's great to have you on Bridges to the Future. Let's start with the question we kind of ask everybody on this. Just it's like that question you use to put people at their ease in job interviews. Why did you want to tell the story? Why did you decide to write the book? Well, these things require a certain air of modesty and a certain air of experience. And I sort of feel now, after 20 years, I'm allowed to say something. But I feel that people have forgotten how important it is to make things. And they have forgotten that things are made. They just seem to sort of appear and be consumed. But they require people, care, thought, risk, And I wanted to tell that story in the context of our bike because I know it so well and people have seen it, but they may not appreciate that what goes into it. And then ultimately, Brompton is about changing how people live. It's trying to contribute a little bit to make things a bit better. And we can all have whimsical dreams of what we might do and how we might do it. But if you don't actually deliver a business that is profitable, that is scalable, that is international. Your your ideas remain ideas and they don't become reality. So even though somehow business in the UK in particular is a bit of a sort of dirty word, it's really important because it's what delivers change. And finally, you know, we're all going to be dead in a minute. That's a certainty. But there are generations behind us and we have such a responsibility to just do a little bit to make things a bit better. And inadvertently in many cases and, and consciously in others, in the last 150 years since we really started getting into the Industrial Revolution. We haven't done that. We've slightly messed things up. So it's just reminding people how important it is and how possible it is for business to be such an important part of solving many of the world's problems. Yeah, that's a great answer, Will. And it is an answer which kind of captures an essence of the book because this is a book about engineering. It's about management. It's about leadership. It's about business. It's about changing the world. And it felt to me like you were determined that the reader should understand all of this and that the reader would go on you with a journey from chapters describing quite intricate engineering challenges to one making 
the case for a transformation of urban transport. You, you wanted to tell people every bit of it, didn't you, Will? Well, we are so full of sound bites and full of, you know, one-liners. But the world isn't a one-liner. The world isn't black or white. It's shades of grey. It's complex. And if you want to deliver something delightful, it doesn't matter what it is. It doesn't matter whether it's a service or a product. You need to care about the details. So we are fundamentally built off the back of Andrew's great mind and his his innovation and his design. And we've taken that and taken it further. But if you don't really take people down into the depths of the detail, they can't appreciate everything else because that is the foundation of our business. And it, it sort of was deliberate for the majority of readers to take them a little bit beyond where they were comfortable but then try and bring them back up again and put it into perspective of the world and the things that we see and consume. Well, I want to give listeners a feel for the book, mainly because I want them to read it because I really enjoyed it. But let's dip into the journey. How about starting with jigs? Now, I'm going to admit to you, and I know this is a big admission, I didn't even know what one was before I started reading (laughs) the book. So tell me about jigs. Tell me about their importance. And it's just an amazing story from the very first kind of bit of handmade kit right through to pretty sophisticated jigs as they are now. So when you conceive something, you tend to conceive the end product. You conceive, in some respects, you might even conceive how it might affect society. But in most cases, people conceive the product. And that's quite complicated and that requires a certain amount of innovation. But it gets really tricky when you actually want to make it at scale, particularly if it's got quite, it needs to be quite accurate because you can't just wing in a prayer it. And the thing you need to do that to make it at scale is a jig. And what that does is it holds things in a particular way in such, such a way that you can repeat it and it designs out variance and room for error and that then allows you to have different people with different levels of understanding working on the same job and coming out with the identical outcome and that really does require some thought and the jig doesn't need to just work on day one it needs to work after 50 days 100 days and you need to think of all the eventualities of somebody might think of this and then you have to make it so it's not possible to do this so that therefore it's always right and in fact in our bike there is much much more complexity in how we make the bike than in the bike itself and there's as well more innovation ingenuity and head scratching that goes on to design the process of manufacture to deliver the end product and i was going to ask this question at the end will but i'm going to ask it now or a bit of it anyway It's about something which, in a way, you refer to in the book, but it's an interesting theme, which is you're clearly someone committed to craft. You're committed to people. You're committed to belonging and identity in the firm. But yet, inevitably, as it grows, some of that has to be lost because otherwise you're simply not able to grow to meet your ultimate aspiration which by the end of the book is, is is half a million Bromptons. There must have been times when that was difficult, when, for example, automation meant that a wonderful bit of craft was no longer necessary. There was actually a better way of doing it without the necessity of human intervention. 
To what extent is that journey, Will, a journey of, yes, of success and growth, and yes, staying true to the values of the firm, but sometimes having to let go of things that you really value? Do you talk at the end of the book about the fact you no longer know the name of everybody who works for Brompton? And, and that's another example of something I guess you just have to let go? Well, the name does, it makes me sad because I got to just over 300 before I started losing the ability to know everybody's name. And the funny thing is, I can keep about 300, 350 names in my head and they sort of come and go. So I will know somebody's name and then I'll then they'll, I'll fill it in with a new name and then I've suddenly forgotten somebody's name that I definitely know. And then <laughs> it'll jump back in again, but it can't seem to cope with more than that. That's a shame, but I still make a big effort. So I don't just know the 300 names of the oldest stuff. I make an effort to try and learn new names, but then I forget the old ones. But something that I've never been fearful of is craft. Because for me, where you might see craft in our business, it's because it is the very best thing to deliver the best outcome. I'm obsessed with the impact the thing has on the end consumer. That is numero uno. I'm not fetishing about some amazing thing. If it doesn't really, really, really make the experience of the end consumer better, such that they then love it and it makes a positive impact on their life that then they might consider telling their friends about it's just superfluous so form follows function is right at the heart of our business and where we have staff who have a phenomenal craft let us say and let's say that disappears well if they're able to do an incredible craft they're able to do lots of other incredible things so that they're an asset to our business so i don't worry about that but how the business has grown, I mean, there were less than 40 of us when I started, and they're now 800. That is something that gives me concern and making sure that the organisation doesn't, I mean, everyone says it mustn't become too corporate. I don't know whether they mean it or they don't. But for me, I'm forever having to get people to stop being so serious and to you know, to stop being so organised and fill in forms and think their job is to be some sort of robot. And they've got to just chill out and, and just follow their heart and do stuff that feel right rather than because the system tells them to. And it's quite tricky because we've grown and we bring in people into the organisation who come from corporate backgrounds and they're just full of systematised box ticking. And that is so not what we want. We want heart. We want you know, think on your feet. We want people who are prepared to take risk and do weird stuff. And if it doesn't work, we learn something, but we can't, we're never going to innovate. We're never going to push the boundaries if we just believe everything we saw before us. Yeah, it's fascinating that that question of what you hold on to and what you let go. And, and I'm really interested, Will, that you, for you, the North Star of delighting your customers is the thing that helps you distinguish from those things you will always hold on to and those things that you will... Let go. A friend of mine, a guy called Matt Kane, he wrote a little ebook, having kind of failed as an entrepreneur, mainly failed because I gave him the idea and it was a stupid idea. And he wrote a little book, very entertaining little book called How Not to Be an Entrepreneur. And it was 10 lessons, 10 things to do if you wanted to fail as an <laughs> entrepreneur. And the first one was fall in love with your first idea. Yes. It's true, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, it is true. But then you have to fall in love. So you mustn't, I mean, you might be lucky in your first idea, it might be brilliant. Andrew's first idea was in gardening, so, and then it, that went bust. So luckily he didn't, <laughs> he didn't fall entirely in love with that, but he didn't give up. And then he fell in love with the Brompton. And 
it's so funny inside Brompton, we have all sorts of little businesses and businesses inside businesses and then ideas inside the business. And we all have our pet projects. And it's a running joke because we all know whose pet projects what. But that's a good start because if someone really believes in something, it may not succeed, but it's got a lot more chance of succeeding if the person behind it is absolutely in love with it. So sometimes when somebody comes up with an idea that has got nothing to do with their role, we will let them run with it because they love it and it's their baby and no one will do a better job and put in more effort and and heart than that person. Whether it succeeds or fails, we never quite know, but you know, we've just got to keep pushing and trying and recognizing that somehow through education, we're encouraged to be the same. We all have to get A stars and we all have to do well in these subjects. And then of course, when you're growing up, everyone needs to wear the same clothes and listen to the same music. Whereas actually what you want are the people that don't wear the same clothes, that don't listen to the same music, that weren't following the crowd. And in fact, people who are a little bit different. And yet we create a system of education that makes everyone the same. And that's so not what we need to solve the world's problems. We need to look at the world from a different perspective and allowing people and giving them the confidence to do what they really feel like and really believe in and not feel embarrassed and not follow the crowd is something we're trying to do at work. But it's it's not always easy because there's such a culture of conformity. Well, that human dimension brings me to the next kind of example from the book that I wanted to talk about. So, you know, there's a lot in the book about engineering, quality, precision, but also a lot about people. And I I particularly enjoyed the chapter about paintwork as it brought together the material challenge, which was fascinating about the things that could, little things that could go wrong with the paintwork and the quality assurance, but also with a wonderful story of someone who's just like what you've described, someone who was an enthusiast and who you gave a little bit of room to develop his idea and who actually helped you solve it. Yes, you must be referring to Kane, still, who still works yes. for us, who's a complete legend. And it's the other sort of obvious thing, and it's I'm going off piece now, but there's this complete misnomer that somehow the in inverted commas management know what they're doing and somehow have some deep capability to deal with difficult and complex challenges and that uh, you know other operators in the business don't which i don't buy at all in our business i mean i literally everybody knows everything they know how much money we've made they know how much cash we got i tell them everything warts and all the whole damn shoot i would be no good in a public company i can't not tell everyone everything but the reason for that is that there is so much to your staff than you realize you are seeing a little sliver of who they are. And like the rest of us, they are living in a complex world with a complex life. And we've all got some phenomenally challenging thing going on in our life that most people don't know about, but they're all there. And to underestimate the challenges and the responsibilities that people in your organisation have is a real missed opportunity because... If you can share what's going on in the business, your staff will come to you with ideas. And I've got a meeting tomorrow at 7.30 to talk to my team to tell them some pretty intense, really strategic, deep stuff. But they'll have the whole lot laid out in front of them. And then they can ask me any question they like. And and then they'll all start thinking about it and they'll come up with ideas and then they'll understand why we're doing certain things in the business because they've got the full context. So Kane is an example where 
he came up with a solution that was so breathtakingly powerful using nothing more than a Raspberry Pi, which is a 22-pound children's teaching aid for coding, a bit of Python, which I thought was a snake, turns out to be a coding language. And he just created the beginnings of Industry 4.0, a very smart system of operating our company. And that's just one example. We're riddled in sort of unlocking talent right under our nose in our staff. And and it's such a funny world we live in that that, that certain people think they know. And, and of course, we do know because we've studied, but, but don't underestimate the deep talent and perspective you have in your organisation. Yeah. People will have to buy the book to understand how it was that Cain solved the problem or went about solving the problem of orange peel paint. Correct. It's a fascinating chapter. Anyway, you're very open, Will, in the book about mistakes, frustrations on the journey, but you clearly see these as these kind of adverse experiences as opportunities for learning. So let's take one of those examples. Share with us the story of how getting to an electric Brompton took you, what, three times as long as you hoped? Indeed, three times as long as you first promised. Yes. That is where the question you asked earlier about, you know, falling in love and how not to be an entrepreneur, it's a very fine line between falling in love and blindly falling in love versus being determined and not giving up. And you have to ask yourself that question all the time because sometimes you don't quite know which one it is. And the electric bike was one of those where, you know, we set off on a journey to try and create an electric bike. And this was very, very much in the early days, so probably about 15 years ago when we first started. The problem we have is our bike folds and it needs to be light, which means an electric drive system needs to be compact and light. And if you need something that's compact, light, and also to carry 90 kilos up a steep hill, it gets quite tricky. And what was on the market from the likes of Bosch was big and heavy and your arm would fall off. And in any event, they wouldn't have entertained doing anything with us because we were way too little. So our first idea was to try and find something that existed in the market and to sort of modify it and see if we couldn't find a way to make it work for us. And we found this motor made by a company called Tongjing, and that's another story as to how we even found the motor. But anyway, we did. And I went to see them when we went in China, which sounds sort of laissez-faire, but actually we were trying to do sell bikes to China, and I thought I'd go and see them. All looked very promising. They had an office in Shanghai, and it was just a nondescript little office. But, you know, it looked promising. But they wouldn't show me the factory. And for me, seeing the factory and understanding how it's made and the real capability of the team is everything. So... I went away quite excited, but unable to sort of, you know, get really excited. And the chap who looks after my design, another Will, he then went out about nine months later. And I said, Will, you've got to go and see the factory. So on this occasion, I did get to see the factory. And it was about two hours away outside of Shanghai. And I mean, they literally took him to a pig farm. And there were people smoking clay pipes, like Dickensian clay pipes, great big long things and they were hand winding motors which you know motors have stators and windings i mean it was just beyond dodgy and totally and utterly not possible so having got really excited it was like complete crash into burnville then we found the next sort of night in shine and came tropping along and there was a company who were the next you know during this time sort of e-bikes were beginning to get a bit of momentum 
And there was this quite well-funded company that was promising the earth and they were full of beans and their sales guy was amazing. And it was, we thought we'd done it. We'd cracked it. And we even went to their factory and the factory looked amazing. And it was all looking good. And it looked so great. And we put in quite a lot of money at the time, which was a lot of our hard-earned savings. And then we even announced it to all of our customers. It's coming, electric. You know, it's so exciting. And they'd been telling us that they'd made progress and that they'd cracked it. And of course, they had not cracked it at all. It was too difficult for them. They couldn't do it. But they told us this literally last chance corral. And it was a totally embarrassing, awful situation where we'd really mismanaged our communication to our customers. And then it was back to square one. And then, you know, gosh, here we go again. And all the time you're losing credibility with your board. Correct. And then, of course, the market is falling away in front of us and suddenly e-bikes, everyone's riding them, but not really folding e-bikes because it's tricky. And then I rang up a chap called Patrick Head who ran Williams F1. And that's another story because business is so about relationships. But he was a Brompton fan and I'd met him through Brompton. And I said, look, Patrick, I need some help. You must know somebody in Europe. We needed somebody who we could visit because it was technically very tricky. Could you suggest anyone? He goes, oh, well, well, of course well, I think we could probably help. You know, we've got motors in our F1 cars. And I had no idea. It's not an area I'm particularly following. And they had a KERS system in their F1 cars, kinetic energy recovery system, which effectively used a motor as a dynamo going into a corner when they braked, stored the energy in a little very efficient battery, ran the corner, and then they got extra acceleration as they came out the corner. So effectively, they were making very efficient, very light motors and batteries. And that was the beginning of a four-year relationship with Williams Advanced Engineering. And it all turned out to be way harder than they thought. They thought, oh, bicycle, easy peasy. But it was flipping tricky. And we really, we nearly didn't get through that. And that was not a done deal at all. And then they produced this magnificent masterpiece. But it really was a sort of over-engineered one-off, because that's what Williams are very good at doing. They make amazing one-offs and then they have to make build a new car for the next race. Well, it took us another two years to take that brilliant concept, but make it makeable and make it affordable. And that was the beginning of our electric journey, which even when we started the, the journey and started selling it, we were still on a steep learning curve because it's a big change from effectively being a metal basher to being a software and electronics company. Uh, but that, that transition has now occurred. So nothing is easy On the face of it, you know, Brompton has just gone from strength to strength, but it just isn't like that. There's so much work and mistakes and errors and, you know, two steps forward and one step back. But we know we want to get to the top of the mountain, so we don't lose sight of that. No, and you don't duck in the book some of the hard choices that you had to make along the way. Of all the lessons that you impart in the book, and there are many, choose one. Well, hopefully it resonates through every page in the book. And it's passion. If you don't believe in what you're doing, forget it. Just do something else. As I said already, we're going to be dead in a minute. We're only here for a little blip. So we've got to believe in what we're doing and have some passion. And if you have that, everything else you can withstand. But if you don't believe in what you're doing, you will never get anywhere because as soon as you're knocked down, you'd rather lie on the floor and not get back up again. Whereas if you believe in it, you bounce back up again, ready 
ready for the next hit. But that's fine because you're you're so excited about where you're going and what could happen and the potential and it's just over the horizon and we'll get there. Let me end with a couple of slightly cheeky questions because, you know, I'm in awe, to be honest, well, of, of you and, and what you've achieved. But the two very different questions. One is... You don't really talk about this. You do mention in the book that people sometimes refer to the Brompton as the architect's bike because it's kind of, on the one hand, it's it's for people who really care about design and all of that, but it's also for people who can kind of afford, you know, what is very cost-effective, but it's an expensive bit of kit initially. But what you don't say is that is that sometimes the Brompton is portrayed in kind of rather semi-humorous terms. I'm thinking, for example, of the Hugh Modderville character mm. in W1A, where his attempts every the beginning of, in every episode to kind of fold up his bike, yes. kind of speak to his rather self-regarding nature. The air of eccentricity, yes. it is a bit of the brand, isn't it, Will? It's not conscious, but... I mean, you have a world championship where people have to wear ties and suits, oh, yes. don't you? So, so there is there is a bit of that is part of it, isn't it? I suppose even that's not conscious. That's just that's because the world of cycling went a bit mad, and people forgot that cycling is a mode of transport for seventy years. That's why we did that because cycling, certainly in many parts of the West, you went cycling. You had to wear lycra. And you had to get on a bike and pedal very, very fast. It was like it was a sport, which it is. And, and it's a great sport, but it's also a transport where you just wear clothes. Like you don't talk about walkists, but you talk about cyclists. You know, we just walk everywhere. You just cycle everywhere to get on. the. So, but the eccentricity comes from the fact that the bike is counterintuitive. That is where the design is eccentric because you look at it and it just doesn't tell you what it is. I mean, at first glance, you think, well, what is that? Is, is that a wheelchair? What, what's going on there? And they say, no, 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 it's a bicycle. And then you proceed to sort of, you know, do your rather smug unfold, uh, at which point the casual observer goes, well, I don't like the look of that because it looks like it might collapse on me. And anyway, it's got those funny little wheels. I mean, you'll have to pedal really fast. All, of course, is not true. But unlike many other things that we see, that tell us everything that they are. They're luxury, they're sleek. The Brompton requires a certain confidence to see beyond what is right in front of your nose. And if you can do that, you will have an absolute delight and fun and freedom and happiness. But it's not so obvious. So maybe, and that's maybe why it has its sort of eccentricity and its ridicule a little bit. But it doesn't bother me because ultimately... The thing that really matters is, as you say, the Brompton is an investment. It's not given away. It might last 20, 30 years. So it's a phenomenal investment, but it's a big leap. But you, and I've been doing it for 20 years, when I meet our customers, this little bike that Andrew invented has changed their life. It's changed my life. It's changed, you know, we just recently made our millionth bike. It's changed a lot of people's lives. It hasn't radically changed it, but it's made a real positive contribution. There aren't too many things, if you look about your home, that you think, well, that has really had a little impact on my life. So that's so precious. That's so that's such a privilege to be working in a business where you're involved in something that does that. Yes, and I was really pleased when I read in the book how fast the bikes go, because the other day I was cycling through York and 
someone went past me on a Brompton and my immediate feeling was, oh my God, you know, I must be cycling very slowly or something. And then it was really interesting to read in the book that actually the Brompton does go pretty fast. So you helped me with a slight feeling of inadequacy as well as making me more desirous of actually getting one of your bicycles one day. Now, Final question, and I don't want to be kind of prying when I ask this question, but throughout the book, your relationship with Andrew, it's always there. And in many ways, you kind of hint at the fact that it's one of those relationships of enormous mutual respect, but also one in which there is always going to be, as it were, a slight distance between you because of your characters, because of what really deeply matters to Andrew, and what has to matter to you because you are the CEO of a global company. You refer to it rather nicely, and one gets that sense without you going into kind of enormous depth in it. But th that is a very big part of the story, isn't it, about that, that relationship? Mm, it is. And it is, it is a classic sort of succession challenge that many businesses fail at and it isn't easy and i mean in any business you need to take that seriously and you can get distracted by the day-to-day -day and, the, and the products but succession and and the transition is really important but in terms of my personal relationship with andrew i mean i I'm extraordinarily fond of him, but he drives me mad. <laughs> yeah. But he, he's a complete legend, and he is so pure in his thinking and his approach to life design. He's a spectacular mind. It's so hard to describe. I mean, he has driven me to sort of despair, but at least it's consistent. He's never... He's not chopping and changing. His position is very, very consistent. And I've, you know, I, I'm not even forgive him really, but I just sort of, I'm extremely fond of him and because I respect him so much. But, but that mm. funny uh, feeling of he does drive me potty and I think I do the same to him. But we are very fond of each other and also have a deep respect. I don't know what more you can say. I think it's that well. I think it's the respect. I think if you have a really deep respect for another human being, then it's possible to work through almost any difficulty. And, and that's what comes out of me from that story. Will, thank you so much for writing The Brompton Engineering for Change. It's a lovely book. As I say, you'll, you'll come away with, even for someone with no practical skills like me, you'll come away with some insight into engineering processes, but you'll also come away being irritated at how long it's taking us to change our urban planning and really put cycling at the heart of transport. So a fantastic book. And thank you for joining us on Bridges for the Future. My pleasure. Although Will's book reminded me once again of how much I wish I'd learned some practical skills as a child, I could fully relate to the leadership lessons. So I thought I'd share one myself. When I look back on my time at the RSA, I feel proud of the progress we made and I guess somewhat sad that the society seems to be going in a different direction now. But I have to admit that whilst we became successful and a well-regarded institution, we never really achieved the high impact I hoped for. Looking back, I think part of that was that I didn't do the work of describing even in outline terms, what success would actually look like. I was just happy setting the direction. 
And now I think that was a mistake. And in my new job at the NHS Confederation, I think it's vital to articulate a vision that's at once both credible and inspiring, a vision of where we could be in, say, three years. And although at the moment I can only see that vision in outline, it's already giving me a stronger sense of purpose and excitement. It's also starting to help me backcast from that future to decisions we need to make now. Reading Will's book helped me develop that insight. And for that, along with many other reasons, I'm very glad I read it. Goodbye. We are the RSA. We enable the game changers of today to shift systems, challenge norms, and create impact where it's needed most. Visit thersa.org slash approach to find out how. And let's make change happen.